This is Stephen Becker. This is Beth White. And this is Cleared. very first episode you and pilot. me this is our pilot there this is our genesis of the podcast right here and i have to say i'm very very excited this is something that's when what do you think two three four years in the process of occurring for you it's been that long i feel you've like been it's been nag- decades you've been nagging at me that long i feel like it's been decades So this pretty much all started, just to give you a little bit of a backstory, is I am addicted, obsessed, you could pick your adjective, in podcasts, Uh, primarily true crime, history podcasts, news podcasts, whatever it is, I consume it. And I consume it in mass quantities. Uh, This has been going on for years. And as part of that going on, I have been in the works of trying to talk my father into doing one with me. And it just so happens that we have a very big passion that we share in wrongful convictions and helping write them. I can say for me, what I pinpoint the start of that passion being my senior year in high school, I had a research paper about capital punishment. And as one of the assignments or qualifications of that assignment, you had to have sources other than websites or books. I remember having a conversation with my dad about it, which led to him finding Alan Alda speaking at a local college. And he was speaking about wrongful convictions and capital punishment. And that kind of, for me, really ignited a passion within me that still to this day burns pretty strong. So it's something we've bonded over. As far as doing a podcast and me nagging him, which he's very correct. I'm a very good nagger. I have been nagging for some years. It all started when he ran across a news article for our first individual and his story. And I remember he shared it to me on Facebook and it was the first time he acknowledged the presence of maybe, yeah, I'm interested in doing a podcast. I remember how excited I was and I read the article and it just, it blew me away. All right. My experience with podcasts, it's interesting. I can summarize it on something that happened very in the last couple of days. Uh, Beth and I put out a little teaser uh, that we were starting a podcast And I got an online message from a Facebook friend that said, where do I find this? I've never done it. And my response to him was, I don't know. (laughs) Neither have I. (laughs) I I don't listen to podcasts because I don't know where to go to find them. So (laughs) my producer has assured me that he will take care of all that. So I don't even concern myself with it. Okay, that's the background. Okay. All right, let's get started with the case. Let's go to Charleston, West Virginia, the capital of West Virginia. It's not very large, considering it's the capital city, when it's defined by city limits. The population is 48,000. However, 
it's part of a metroplex that has a population of about 208,000. In this metroplex is an area called Kanawa City. It's all located in Kanawa County. In 1791, all right, 1791, that's oh, way only, back. That's only 230 years ago. Daniel Boone was a Kanawha County assemblyman. Our focus is going to be a little bit more contemporary than that. Our focus is going to be 1987 and the following 27 years. So, it's 1987, May 16. There is a home invasion committed within Kanawha City. The resident, Bethel Farah, is 82 years of age. And she lives there with her daughter, who is 60 years of age. The attacker severely beats... Miss Farah, the mother, and violently throws her to the floor. He then beats the daughter about the face, drags her into another room, and forcibly rapes her. Two months later, July 24, there is another similar assault committed in a similar manner also in Kanawha City area of Charleston. The victim is Lillian Ruckman. She had just arrived home from work at 10.30 p.m. Jimmy J.C. Gardner was born July 1st, 1966 in Dawson, Georgia. It's the county seat of Terrell County. The population as of 2010 census was 4,500, so it's a small town. Uh, His parents, his dad, Jimmy Lee Gardner, was a home builder, and his mom, Gladness Gardner, worked for Clotes and Clerk and later as a school bus driver. Jimmy was number five of eight kids, so he had a whole bunch of brothers and sisters, a big family. Growing up, He had a very happy childhood by all accounts. Everyone got along together. Him and his family, they ended up moving to Tampa, Florida. He was a naturally gifted athlete. He played football, basketball, but ultimately decided on baseball. Uh, One of the news articles I read, he chose baseball because he liked the uniforms. And man, was he good at it. He played Belmont Heights Little League, where he was a star pitcher. His teammates and even opposing Team members would talk about how good of an arm he had. Kind of a little funny story about Jimmy that I read. He goes by Jimmy Gardner. Sometimes you refer to him as J.C. Gardner. A local newspaper reporter was asking him what the C stand for in his name. And it was just an initial, but he told the reporter that his name stand for cool. (laughs) He played in high school at Tampa Bay Vocational Technical High School. He maintained good grades all throughout with a higher than a 3.0. Immediately out of high school, he was drafted to the Chicago Cubs franchise for baseball. He played for their minor league team, Charleston Wheelers, for four seasons. 
during the off seasons, he would return home. He was going to school for business and he would spend time with his daughter. The investigation of the crimes that I described earlier um, involved over 100 suspects. And the reason is because the description of the attacker given by the victims was broad and vague, but it included that the attacker was a light-skinned black man and very must quote, very muscular, like an athlete. That's what triggered the investigation to focus on area athletes. And that certainly included the Charleston Wheelers because their, um, their ball field was in Kanawha City. They also focused on other area uh, black athletes. So they had quite a chore. Uh, it was 12 weeks after the crime um, when Jimmy Gardner uh, was interviewed and he voluntarily at that time uh, provided fingerprints. What I imagine is the police showing up while this team is practicing or playing. And then can you imagine what that must have looked like? Everybody just get in the car. You're all coming downtown. We're going to interrogate you. Particularly where it was only black players. Can you imagine? So according to Jimmy, after about 90 minutes, he had, he had provided all of his fingerprints to them. And after about 90 minutes of interrogation, the police let him go. And he, they even congratulated and wished him good luck on his upcoming season because they said nothing of his matched the crime or what was at the crime. So he went on his way thinking nothing more of it. Two years later, two years later in Florida, he's arrested for an unrelated event. His fingerprints are in the system. And here comes these detectives wanting to talk about a 1987 crime again. So Jimmy gave them everything, blood samples, saliva, pubic hair, fingerprints, everything. He had nothing to hide. He was immediately arrested after that and was told that his fingerprints matched fingerprints found on a vase at the first victim's crime scene. Keep in mind, he'd already provided them two years prior. Going back to that, where they let him go the first time, they released him because nothing matched, is, is his words, nothing matched. Going Adding on to that, they were looking for a light-skinned black male around six foot. Jimmy, at the time, he said he had been playing baseball for four seasons. He was the darkest he's ever been. Dark, dark, dark is what he said. And he was six foot four. I'll continue a little bit with the, uh, with the fingerprints. The latent print that they had was off of a base that was in the home of the first victim. And it was determined that the match to this latent print was... Jimmy Gardner's left middle finger. That's what they testified to. Um, another officer testified, no, it was a thumb. And then to further complicate this fingerprint evidence, they sent it to the FBI they, to, for a report, for a review and the FBI couldn't do it because they didn't send Jimmy's fingerprints. They sent him two latent prints. 
Well, I think another important aspect to bring up is one of the attacks occurred on a night that he was pitching. He was playing a game. He was actively playing a game during one of these attacks. And the police's whole theory was that these two were combined. They were the same person. They were attached. So Jimmy also thought, you know, I don't, I don't have anything to worry about. I'm on the field pitching during one of these attacks. And still they brought him in. And you know what they said? Their theory as far as him being pitching, that he pitched a few innings, got upset, left, went and committed this crime, and then returned for the end of the game. That was their theory of events for that night for Jimmy in order to make this fit for him. They got his print. They found a match. And that led to Found a match, air quotes. And that led to the indictment of Jimmy Gardner. That happened in May of 1989, pretty much two years after the crime. Nine counts, two separate offenses. Another interesting thing about the investigation was that all of the victims in these cases said that Jimmy was not the person. He was not the attacker. In fact, one of the victims actually ID'd another person in a lineup. She thought that person was it. And she was told that couldn't have been the case based on DNA evidence. Jimmy Gardner's trial began six months after his arrest. Relatively quickly, based on my experience, the trial lasted seven days. During the opening statement, At the trial, the prosecutor told the jury the state would be relying primarily on the testimony of the state's head serologist, Fred Zane. You'll need to remember that name for some later developments. And also relying upon the fingerprint evidence, which we've already addressed. Beth mentioned victims' identification. There was no identification of Jimmy Gardner by the victims. I think it's even further than that. Not only was there no identification, they said it was not him. One victim said it was not him. And the other said she couldn't tell for sure. Right. I think it's important to note that the victim said it 100% was not him. And they still proceeded with prosecution on it. And this is both during the investigation and during the trial. During the trial, they always ask the victim, is the assailant in the courtroom? Is your attacker in the courtroom? The first victim said, no, no, no. One of them said, I can't be sure. And the other one was adamant that it was not Jimmy Gardner. Can you imagine being Jimmy sitting there and the victim on the case that you're charged with is up there saying that is 100% not him and you're still sitting in a courtroom being charged for the crime? Can you imagine a prosecutor continuing to prosecute the case when the victim says it's not him? Can you imagine a prosecutor prosecuting the case when the alleged suspect is on a minor league baseball field pitching during one of the crimes. I mean, we could just keep going on with that. It's nuts. I also want to add one more thing to this. The 
the victim that identified someone else, the the person she identified was Gary Hatchett. Um, and I'll be addressing that somewhat in uh, post-conviction um, developments. But, yes, they were shown photographic lineups during the investigation, um, which is kind of the only lineups that I ever uh, had experience with. Uh, we don't do the, they don't do the in-person lineups like you see on TV where you ask number four to step forward and say something. It's a photographic lineup. And this one victim was shown two photographic lineups. They both had a picture of Jimmy Gardner, and she did not pick out Jimmy Gardner. But yet the prosecution proceeded with the trial. Let's talk about this testimony of Fred Zane. Remember, he is the, uh, the head, the chief serologist with the state police. Serology is the study of blood fluids. I want to point out that this trial is before DNA had ever been used um, in the criminal justice system. It was certainly developing. It was. It wasn't. In, it wasn't a common practice. Right. They typically relied on blood typing. Right. That was as specific as they could get at that point. So yeah, we're not for the trial purposes. We're not going to be talking about DNA results. We're talking about blood results. So, Fred Zane, head serologist testified longer than any other witness in the case. He was the main witness of the prosecution. He had issued several pre-trial forensic reports, and he testified, testified about them at the trial. The first report stated that the seminal fluid collected from the first victim contained blood type O. The second report that was made a year later compared the known genetic markers to Gary Hatchett. Okay, this is the guy that the second victim identified as her attacker. His genetic markers were compared to the markers collected from the first victim. The report concluded the Hatchett sample contained blood type O and was consistent with the samples collected from the first victim. Zane's third report was issued two weeks before the trial started. It analyzed a blood sample from the defendant, Jimmy Gardner, and concluded that he was blood type. Are you all ready for this? Blood type A. Gardner's blood was not compared to any vaginal swabs collected from the victims. Notwithstanding these reports. All right. Zane testified that Hatchett was totally excluded as a possible donor in both cases, but he could not exclude Jimmy Gardner as the semen depositor. So essentially he reversed it. It should have been the other way around. Yeah, Jimmy should have been excluded because he didn't even have the same blood type as the attacker. 
So was Jimmy's legal team aware of these pre-sentence reports, or was it just the final one? Fred Zane testified about these reports uh, during the trial. So, closing arguments. The prosecutor argued, one, that the testimony of Zane and the officer who testified about the compared fingerprints as confusing as that was, was the damning evidence against defendant Gardner. He further argued that the similar MO suggested the same perpetrator was responsible for both crimes. Despite Jimmy, once again, being on a pitching mound, pitching during a baseball game. Number three. The prosecutor reminded the jury that Hatchet was completely eliminated as a suspect based upon Zane's testimony and four. Okay, when there's a jury trial, the prosecutor really wants to provide the jury with a motive. Number four was the motive that Gardner attacked the women out of anger because of his poor pitching record with the Wheelers. Excuse me? Quote, he was mad. He was angry, and he vented his anger on three people who couldn't fight back. Unquote. Are you kidding me? And again, just to interject here, one of those crimes would have been during the game. The prosecutor was saying he was so upset during the game, he just had to leave the game and go assault somebody and then come back for the end of it. Man, this would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. Very much, and especially not if his whole life was dependent upon it. The jury deliberated over a period of three days. On February 1, 1989, the verdict found Jimmy Gardner guilty of all counts relating to the first Incident. That's the one with the mother and daughter, correct? Felony assault of 80-year-old Bethel Farrell. Sexual assault of her daughter, 60-year-old Wilma Galati. And burglary and robbery. The verdict was not guilty to the crimes that were committed in the second incident that was investigated. On March 5, month later, Gardner was sentenced to an aggregate indeterminate term of 33 to 100 years in prison. Okay, so he is convicted, ordered to 100 years max sentence in prison. I uh, listened to a podcast where he talked about that moment and what it meant to him and how he felt and the anger that immediately came over him. He said that he went back into the jail, into his room, and somebody had broken into his dorm and taken all of his family pictures out of his locker. Just just the rage that enthralled him after that. And he said it enthralled him for a few years. I think that's what's so commendable about Mr. Gardner is that he's so willing to talk about the negative side of that. I feel like a lot of times with wrongful convictions... You hear the good part at the end, the happiness of being wrongfully convicted and having that being righted, that process. But I just can't imagine the rage that must be some. I mean, take Jimmy, for instance. He is an up-and-coming pitcher on a minor league baseball team. 
I mean, he's not just somebody, you know, he's doing something with his life and then it's all taken away. One of the resource books I have on this topic has a paragraph that I'm going to read um, that I found so compelling that addresses this prison time for the innocent. And the book is by Jim McCloskey. The title, When Truth is All You Have, A Memoir of Faith, Justice, and Freedom for the Wrongly Convicted. Excellent book. I encourage you all to check it out. But this is a paragraph. Their closest friend in prison, the ally that gives them the strength to endure, even in the depths of their despair, is their absolute knowledge of the truth of their innocence. It is the truth, the honest, unwavering bedrock of truth upon which they stand day after cruel, heartbreaking day. And when discovered, it is an irrepressible force with the full redemptive power to set them free. Those are the words of Jim McCloskey. Um, and again, what a beautiful title. And what Jimmy, um, Jimmy was in prison when truth is all you have. Going along with that, when he got to prison, when he left jail and was transported to prison, uh, he spent two years in solitary confinement for a fight that he got into. Two years, his first two years of prison, he spent in solitary confinement. Oh, I did not know 23 that. hours a day alone in your cell. One hour, he either had recreation time or he could go to the law library. Uh, I listened to an interview with him where he said that he met with the nurse at that time. And wouldn't you know, the nurse told him, hey, you have high blood pressure. His response, you think? <laughs> of course I have high blood pressure. He talks a lot about how dangerous and how violent prison was for him in the 90s and how all the TV dramas that portray it are not overplaying it. He talks about how he saw dozens of people murdered and hundreds more die of poor conditions, poor living conditions, suicide. He said that the people in the prison that he was at were like zombies and there was just death in the air. Can you imagine going to that kind of environment, an innocent man found guilty? He said after the nurse had talked to him about his high blood pressure, he determined that he was going to do something for himself. And he was, he never gave up hope on being righted, his wrong being righted. He said that he was going to take care of his mental health, his physical health, and he was going to do something to right this wrong. He said he took whatever class he could when he was in prison. I think he ended up getting maybe three associate's degrees, all the HVAC courses, all the technical stuff that he could do. He did everything. He spent years and years and years in the law library learning what he could. Of course, following the, the conviction, there was the appeal process. And one of the things that's very important to remember in this particular case is you appeal through the state system, and only after you exhaust your state remedies are you allowed to reach out to the federal system. But I read uh, that his appeal to the West Virginia 
Supreme Court was summarily denied, which I think means that it was denied based on written briefs and uh, they didn't have a uh, hearing for oral argument. So what would the time frame on that be for his first appeal to come around? Are we talking months, years? I believe it was before 1993. So, so it would have been years. within three years of his conviction. You want to know what else happened within three years of his conviction? Please tell. Fred Zane, you remember that one serologist, again, air quotes, it started coming out that he was providing false testimony. That started. Within three years that came out and Jimmy got word of it. He did an interview with USA Today once that information was out while he was still incarcerated, keep in mind, he's only in for three years at this point when he does this interview, talking about how excited he is, how he's going to get out soon. Perhaps the sun started to come up on Jimmy Gardner's life in 1993. And as you said, how this came out was the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, all right, West Virginia Supreme Court, completed an investigation on this Fred Zane. The investigation was prompted by an exoneration in an unrelated case, but their findings, I'm, I'm going to read part of their conclusions from this investigation. First of all, I find it very unusual that the Supreme Court conducted an investigation of a law enforcement officer. But after they did so, they issued an opinion. My experience with appellate court opinions are that not often are they as harsh as this one. I'll let the listeners decide if they're mincing any words. These are the words of the West Virginia Supreme Court concerning Fred Zane. We conclude that Fred Zane had a long history of falsifying evidence in criminal prosecutions, that Zane's pattern and practice of misconduct completely undermined the validity and reliability of any forensic work he performed or reported, that the matters before the court are shocking and represent egregious violations of the right of a defendant to a fair trial and stain our judicial system and mock the ideal of justice under the law. Bam. Well, and so it's not even that, oops, I got a mistake. I made this one mistake on this one case. No, he knowingly created false evidence. It wasn't just a simple error or a simple accident. And I've read numbers anywhere between 130 to 140 different cases he provided falsified testimony in order to get convictions. My research revealed that as well. In one, one source, it said it affected at least. Well, in this, uh, in this court opinion, it said his falsified data and testimony uh, was in as many as 134 criminal cases, many of which were prosecuted by the same prosecutor in Jimmy Gardner's case. Well, what I read, too, is that there were 
references that the prosecutor's office, the prosecutor, were aware of his unreliability when it came to being an expert witness on the topic as early as 1985, but they still allowed him to testify in Jimmy's case in 1990. That's five years of knowing he's not qualified to talk about what we're dealing with here, but we're going to go ahead and allow it because we need this conviction. I also read that the uh, the prosecutor in Jimmy Gardner's uh, case was familiar with the Supreme Court's investigation of Fred Zane uh, during Jimmy Gardner's trial. Okay, so the Supreme Court ordered that special post-conviction consideration should be given to all affected defendants. They instructed that each defendant in a case involving Fred Zane evidence should be allowed to seek state habeas corpus relief. Me as not a lawyer, as a layperson, how does that work? All right. So with this kind of directive, it says to the defendant, file your writ of habeas corpus. So is it up to the defendant to know about this? Or are they notified of the decision? I'm not sure how the notice gets out, but believe me, the inmates find out about developing law. Yeah, okay, so I'll explain what habeas corpus is. Um, It's a Latin term that we in the legal community will not let go. And very simply or very directly, it means release the body. I think perhaps the most famous writ of habeas corpus is when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. He was petitioning Pharaoh for habeas corpus. Release the bodies because they're being held illegally. So Jimmy learns of this ruling in the Zane investigation, and he immediately files his writ of habeas corpus with the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court grants it and says to the trial court, this is the way habeas corpus works. You get it to an appellate court, and then if the appellate court grants it, they send your case down to the back down to the trial court and say, and say give this man an evidentiary hearing. Okay, so that's what happened. He got out and he lived happily ever after, right? That's how the uh, that's how the chain of events should go. Wait, really? That's no. What are we at? Three years in still? No, we're more. Now we're in March one of nineteen ninety five. That's when the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court, mind you, directed a full hearing on Gardner's case. March 1, 1995. Please understand that the Supreme Court does not conduct evidentiary hearings. If there needs to be an evidentiary hearing, they remand the case or send the case back to the trial court and say, you conduct the evidentiary hearing. So that's what they did, right? So kind of like when you turn in your homework and your teacher knows it's all BS and says, hands it back to you and says, uh, do this again, please, and do it right this time. Is it kind of like that? Yeah. It's kind of like Not that. that I would have any experience with that, but it sounds something like that. It does sound something like that. And usually implied in that order from the Supreme Court is get it right this time. So they send this order down, right? 
give him an evidentiary hearing. Uh, it doesn't happen. What do you mean it doesn't happen? And it doesn't happen. My experience tells me that when the Supreme Court sends down a directive to a trial court judge, that moves to the top of the judge's to-do list. You don't mess around. So you mean the Supreme Court said, hey, do this, and the judge is like, eh, and just didn't do it? How does I don't that... Know, I don't know if the trial court was, eh, but it didn't get done. Well, how does that happen? It didn't get done. So, yeah, what happens? Seven years later, get this, seven years later, the Supreme Court sends the second directive. Hey, give Jimmy Gardner an evidentiary hearing. So they gave the, they gave the district court judge seven-year leeway to do something. He didn't get it done. And he still didn't get it done. He didn't get it done. So they told him the second time. So then he did it and lived happily ever after? No. He didn't do it. The third, yeah, that's right, the third directive from the Supreme Court is in November of 05. So that's like three and a half years after the second Okay, so we're directive. in 05. He was convicted in 1990. So we're at 15 years now. We're at yeah. the fifth. Keep in mind at year three, he did an interview saying how he was excited to be released because that's when all the evidence came out about the serologist providing false testimony. Flash forward 12 years and he's still sitting in the same situation. Okay. So my experience of working within the judicial system, if you didn't follow the Supreme Court directive, you would be told harshly to do so. And if you didn't do it, you would be removed from the case and they would appoint another judge to give the evidentiary hearing. That I'm telling you, this would not have happened in Kansas. This, this wouldn't have happened because the Supreme Court would have exerted their authority and made sure that happened if the trial judge didn't do it, they would find someone who did. And think of Jimmy, you know? Oh, for sure. In this, in this one court opinion I read, they called it legal purgatory. Why? Because he can't go to the feds for help because he hasn't exhausted his state remedies, and he hasn't exhausted his state remedies because they will not give him an evidentiary hearing. He's in purgatory. Well, speaking of Jimmy, I read that he filed six habeas corpuses. He went through 13 different attorneys who declined to file them for him. He wrote to every single state official he could, including President Obama, three times. And on the third time, he received a letter back from Eric Holder saying, we can't handle this information or we can't process this because it's at the state level. Essentially what you said, the feds can't interject on a state level incident. He went through all the innocence projects, he even went to Germany's innocence project to try and get some relief. And what he believes is kind of the issue with this case, it's not that the DNA would prove him right. It's that the DNA that was provided by the serologist was falsified. It was his DNA that Mr. Zahn, Fred Zahn provided, but it wasn't at the crime. 
So to anybody outside of the case, not knowing what's going on or not knowing about the serologist, of course he looks guilty because his DNA is there. It's my understanding that in court proceedings, Jimmy blames this delay on the prosecutor for, yeah, delaying the hearing and simply not not doing it. My view is it all the blame should be placed on the judiciary. But when you're fi- filing pleadings <laughs> with the judiciary, you're not going to trash t- talk the court. That's not wise. Not a good idea. Yeah. Don't don't do that. So, yeah, he was putting the blame on uh, on the prosecutor. So he finally files another writ of habeas corpus with the feds, with the federal court, district court. And the federal judge looks at the case, identifies this legal purgatory that Jimmy Gardner is in, and agrees to hear Jimmy's habeas corpus, notwithstanding that Jimmy hasn't exhausted his state remedies. There's there's the intervention. There's the intervening act. There's the person who cares. That leads to where all, all this leads to. A federal judge says, I don't care what the law says about exhausting state remedies. I've looked at this case. Somebody's got to do something and it's going to be me. Okay. So now what year mark are we at now? November 12th, 2013. So now we're at year 23. The federal court, the judge you mentioned, grants Gardner's writ of habeas corpus. And he excused, well, he excused Gardner's requirement to exhaust state remedies before pursuing federal habeas relief. On March 25 of 2016, granted his habeas relief, vacating his convictions and ordered the state, okay? This is what the order out of the federal court is, ordered the state to either retry Jimmy or release him, do one of those two things within the next 60 days. Oh, the prosecutor says, oh, yeah, we're going to retry him. Even though his chief witness, he doesn't have any testimony. His only witness, yes. He doesn't have any Fred Zane testimony, his, his main hook in the case. So anyway, he announces, yeah, we're going to retry Jimmy. So during a pretrial proceeding, here we are in 2016, during a pretrial, Gardner produced a doctor, Theodore Kesis, Ph.D., a serologist and DNA expert. And this doctor testified that the evidence alleged by Zane to show guilt of Jimmy actually totally excluded Jimmy as the possible donor. So an actual expert testified that, no, there's no way this could have been Jimmy. Yes. So that was done during a pretrial. 
So that takes care of it, right? The prosecutor doesn't want to proceed, right? You, no. I think so, but no. I don't know the way this is going. No. The prosecution did not relent for another six months, five days before trial is when the prosecuting attorney's office determined that it had insufficient evidence and dismissed all charges. Well, I think during that time, they were trying to get him to take a plea deal too, to plead guilty for 10 years. And can you imagine Jimmy in that situation? Here we are. We were at 27 years now. We're at the 27 year mark. He's been in prison for 27 years. And the prosecutor says, you know what? We're still going to try you, but Hey, I got a 10 year deal for you. You've already done 10. You'll be out. Just submit your guilt. And he still had fast that he was not guilty and he was not going to plead guilty. Can you just imagine the mental strength that took the resilience that took? No, because I could tell you if it were me, if someone offered me a plea deal and I'd be out, I would probably take the plea deal. Okay. I think I'm through talking about all the legal maneuvering and all the legal proceedings in this case. Um, I want to talk a little bit about my takeaway, what I'm taking away from this case. What Jimmy Gardner has shown me through his nightmare. I think when viewing our criminal justice system, the big picture, looking at it from on high, I think society presupposes three fallacies. Number one, that law enforcement officers never lie. Number two, that prosecutors always seek the truth. And number three, that courts always dispense justice. Jimmy Gardner was hit by the perfect storm. All three of those institutions failed him. All three of them did. For decades. And I'm, I'm going to confess. I mean, here we are in our pilot episode, and I'm moving into true confessions. Okay? I was that naive. I believed those things. Law enforcement officers would never lie, particularly in a simple drug possession case, they wouldn't lie about a traffic stop. I was naive. I learned, I learned differently. I lacked, when I was in serving as district court judge, there was a time, of course, I lacked experience. I was naive. Society, our society is naive about the criminal justice system. Juries are naive about the criminal justice system. They don't believe things like this happen. And if they do, it's very, very rare. Or it's a technicality. Oh, don't use that word around me. <laughs> That's the four-letter word for our podcast, technicality. They got off on a technicality. Oh, nothing rubs me wrong when people say they get off on a technicality because usually what it is 
they get off due to a constitutional amendment. Due to their rights? Yeah. Their rights not being met? Yeah. Is it's, that the it, technicality we're talking about it here? It has something to do with that pesky constitution, you know, that the constitution was violated, and we call that a technicality. That ain't no technicality. That's the foundation of our criminal justice system. That's my takeaway. So I have just a few follow-up things to talk about. That Fred Zane that we were talking about, the serologist, uh, he ended up being fired in 1993. Keep in mind, 1993, Mr. Gardner was convicted in 1990. So three years after his conviction, he was fired. And he was indicted on fraud even. Keep in mind, Mr. Gardner still sitting in prison based on his testimony. Um, he actually never made it to trial, Mr. Zane, because he died. Uh, out of, he died from cancer. It's believed I think 134 people were convicted based on his testimony. Um, according to an article I read about with Mr. Gardner talking about it, he was the sixth person to be released of those 134, and all the hundred plus cases either died or it was all brushed under the rug. That's only six of those cases being righted. Yeah, and I uh, that reminded me that. The prosecutor was directed also to uh, prosecute Fred Zane for his criminal behavior, perjury and fraud and things of that nature, which they did. They filed a criminal case. Like you mentioned, they filed a criminal case against Fred Zane. And some of the counts in that case against Fred Zane were directly taken from Jimmy Gardner's case. But like you said, um, it, the criminal prosecution of Zane was never completed due, to, due his death. to his death. Some kind of interesting stuff that I read specifically about Mr. Gardner. Um, the Monday before he received the news that the federal court judge had vacated his sentence, he received a phone call from his mother and his mother said that she had gone to pray and that she came home and she just told, she needed to tell him, you need to pack your bags, you're coming home. That happened on a Sunday. And then the following Friday, so less than a week later, he got a call from his lawyer telling him that his, his conviction had been vacated. So this big, happy, supportive, loving family that he had was there for him. I think he did lose his aunt I want to say, and maybe his uncle too, while he was incarcerated, his daughter, who was three when he was incarcerated, he released, she was 31. So he missed out on her entire childhood, her entire teenage years, her entire twenties, everything. He lost out on that because of Mr. Zane's falsified testimony. Um, he talks about, I think originally when they vacated his sentence, he was granted a $10,000 bond in April of 2016. And he released to his mother's house and how he, he talks about how the transition that was from being in solitary confinement to his mom's house and how supportive she was, but how protective she was of him. Can you, I, as a mother myself, my son's been in prison for almost three decades for a crime he did not commit. My son would not be leaving the house. Little Becker man would be locked in his room until the foreseeable future. Okay, so he's been released. His sentence is vacated. You know something that bothers me about that? 
They can't say he's innocent of these charges. No, they say there's not enough evidence to further prosecution. I mean, me as a person in the community, if I hear that, that means, oh, he's guilty. They just don't have it. That's not the case at all. He's innocent. I don't know why they, me coming from a non-legal standpoint, I don't know why they can't just say, uh, he's innocent. We screwed up. We're sorry. Continue on with your lives. Huh. I wonder why they can't say that. Sorry is hard sometimes. Okay. So he's released. He's released to his mom's house. Uh, he talks about praying when he was incarcerated about if he was given the opportunity to be released, how he would do anything he could to help others in his situation. And one of the ways he viewed himself doing that was being a motivational speaker. So he made the determination if he was released for the first year, he would speak to anybody and everybody he could, and he wouldn't charge anything. He would just go everywhere to tell his story which he did for the first year. As part of that process, he attended a function for black attorneys. And at that function, he met his wife. Are you familiar with Stacy Abrams? Yes, I know that name. Politics. She is a world-renowned voting rights advocate. She's written mul- multiple books. She was the She won the Democratic Party nomination in Georgia for governor in 2018, the primary election as a Democrat. It just so happens that Mr. Gardner met her sister, Leslie Abrams. So he was at this convention meeting talking with female black attorneys in the state. And so he starts going into his spiel with Leslie, telling all about his history, his past, how passionate he is about the law, all the years he spent in the law library. So he's telling her his story, not knowing that she's a federal district court judge. The first female black federal district court judge appointed by President Obama. So Leslie Abrams? Yes. So he's telling her this, right? And she's, I read an article where it was kind of cute. She was talking about how she was kind of nervous to tell him how knowledgeable he, she was with the law after having that interaction with him, but she did. And wouldn't you know, he was the only man to attend that event. And he just so happened to meet his wife, his love of his life. Uh, He talks very, very fondly, very, the words that he uses to describe his wife is just... I don't know. As a wife myself, it's breathtaking. It's beautiful. The love that he has, the love that they both must have for each other. Um, So they met at that event. They ended up getting married in 2018. They had a big, beautiful wedding. That was the same year that his new sister-in-law ran for governor in Georgia. So since his conviction, Mr. Gardner has been a public speaker, a motivational speaker, He's an advocate for the wrongfully convicted, even having a seat on the Innocence Project. He's a podcaster. He has his own podcast, Chomping It Up with Jimmy C, which I just, I think there's 14 episodes. I just happened to have binged half of them today. They're very wonderful, highly recommend. And he's in the works of writing his own book about his life experience. Currently, he is a full-time student at Chapman University. They're on a presidential scholarship. And he's going for communication studies to help further his message and his word. 
He had already received, I think I read like three associates degrees while he was incarcerated. Remember I said he took anything he could. He did everything he could to keep his mind active in there. That is a whole lot of accomplishments for somebody who has spent almost 30 years in prison. Keep in mind he's 50. He was released just shy of being 50. So he's 55, I believe now. He has a nonprofit group called Gardner House Inc. where the purpose of is allowing a place for newly released individuals from prison to return that provides safety, education, training, counseling, helping them reintegrate into society. So, I mean, he's, he's done a lot. He's done a whole lot. And I think that's something when we talk about wrongful convictions that we don't talk about enough is the social capital we lost with Mr. Garner being incarcerated for three decades, not only with him personally, with his loss of opportunity to be an active role in his daughter's life or to be the brother or the son to his parents or his, his siblings, but just how much he could have accomplished. He talked about how baseball was his passion growing up and how he decided that's what he was going to do and he was going to stick with it. That was going to be his future, God willing, he said. He was going to give it his best shot. But unfortunately, West Virginia took that shot away. So he'll never know if he was going to be good enough. This is only one of so many exonerations of the wrongfully convicted. I uh, I hope this first podcast of ours is successful, meaning that a lot of people listen And a lot of people respond and liked it uh, because I hope we get to do another one. Um, We're planning on on doing another one. A different case in different circumstances. Nagging daughter interrupting. We will be doing another one. (laughs) Okay. We're going to do another one, aren't we? Okay, so let's wrap this thing up. First of all, um, I want to thank our producer, uh, Christopher Acker, uh, not only for his technical assistance that he's giving us, but for his encouragement and uh, support of going forward with this. Uh, I don't think I would have done it if I hadn't received that from Chris. I want to give a shout out to Leanne Ray. She works for the Charleston Gazette Mail, the newspaper, the only daily newspaper of Charleston, West Virginia. I contacted her and she went above and beyond going through the archives and giving me some great news stories that were written while all this was happening. Um, I also want to once again plug the book by Jim McCloskey, When truth is all you have, it's a great read. Assault City Sound Production.